before we go to the passage that I'm going to preach from, I want to encourage you to find the book of Jude with me, which is especially challenging. Jude is a small book right towards the end of your Bible. In fact, maybe the easiest way to find it is to open up at the back. Revelation is the last book of the Bible, and Jude comes right before it. Uh, in some of your Bibles, it might just be a single page. It's a very small book of the Bible. Jude is probably the half-brother of Jesus. Say probably. We, we think that's true for most of church history. That's what people have believed. Um, but the only thing we really know about him for certain is that his name is Jude, and he's a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. I want to read the entire book quickly and briefly for this specific reason. I like to try to have a scripture reading that complements the passage I'm going to preach from for this reason. I believe that the entire Bible is ultimately written by the Holy Spirit. And so, when we read something in one place, we ought to see the same idea in other places. And the unity of the Word of God helps us understand what is true. And so, This is a similar theme to the passage I'm preaching on, and I want us to read it and to be blessed by it. Jude starts in verse 1 and says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reeves at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." 
It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you... Must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Very often I have used the closing verses of Jude to dismiss our services. Because that beautiful prayer of praise to the God who keeps us is a prayer that gives us confidence when so much seems to be shaken. But I want to begin this message by asking this question, how is it that God keeps you? Scripture proclaims that he does, but scripture also describes the way that he does. And to answer that question, I want to take you to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy Paul has been writing to a young pastor who he left at the church in Ephesus. And he's been giving him some basic instructions. And I believe one of the ways God keeps his people as he prepares them for that final day is through being part of a local church where you can hear the word of God, where you can be encouraged, equipped, sometimes warned, and always hear the faithful promises of our good God to forgive and to bless and to save and to provide. Being in a good church is so critical to being kept by God. Yes, it may be possible to not be part of a church and to be a believer, but you will not experience the strength and blessing and comfort that comes from being close to God. And so, in the book of 1 Timothy, Paul has been giving instructions for how the church is to be structured and organized. He begins reminding us of the gospel, giving us great hope that no matter who you are and what you've done or how you feel inside, God loves you and he gave his son to die for you. And when you trust that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, you become part of God's family. Paul says, I am the worst of all sinners. People can be judgmental. We like to build ourselves up by thinking less of other people. Paul says, I'm the worst there is, and God saved me. So I don't care who you are and what you've done, God can save you. And that is the foundation of the church. You read about it in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Then he begins talking about how it's his will and his desire, speaking of God's will and God's desire, 
that the church pray together. Even before it gets to the preaching, he says, let prayers be made for kings and all who are in high positions. Pray, pray. Then he begins to describe some general instructions to men, some general instructions to women. Then he describes the office of overseer, or the office of elder, the office of pastor, and the qualifications for those who serve the church in leadership in that way. Then he describes the office of deacon, and he describes the qualifications for those who serve the church in practical ministries. And then he celebrates the mystery of godliness that has called the church together. So that's what I preached on last week. The mystery of godliness that Christ became a man. Although he's the eternal son of God, he is born in human history. And how he is vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So there's a lot of victory. There's a lot of excitement here. Some of you, if you grew up singing hymns, you might think of like so those old songs like the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Like, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And, and, and you might feel strengthened and encouraged with a, a tune like that, with words that are like, yes, his truth is marching on. And so if you are excited about what God is doing in the church, and if you're excited about Jesus Christ, what do you do when there's division in the church and people leave and people walk away? How do you handle that? Is his truth marching on when your kid says, you know what, I don't really believe any of this and I don't want to be here? Is God's truth still marching on? Now, I think in one sense, if you're a faithful Christian, you go, yes, because you have to. It's like, what's the right answer in Sunday school? It's always Jesus. You say Jesus, no matter what the question is. Yes, of course, God's truth is still marching on, but it still feels like a betrayal and a disappointment. And so the next thing that Paul does is he prepares Timothy as a young pastor with his particular responsibilities of leadership within the church. And the first thing he says is now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. I think it was Easter Sunday. I didn't go back and look. I remember preaching the message. I think it was on Easter, but I'm not 100% sure. I began by telling stories, a few stories, about people who became Christians, people who had kind of unlikely journeys to faith. Um, in fact, I was looking at them again as I prepared this message. And Christianity Today, a, a publication started by Billy Graham, uh, still a great magazine. You can read dozens of stories about how God has saved people dramatically and powerfully. Uh, and I want to mention two that I mentioned in this past year. Uh, one of them is by a lady named Nicole Watt. Uh, Nicole Watt had become a New Age healer. She, she liked to dabble in the occult a little bit in high school. She, uh, she used Ouija boards. She did all kinds of stuff, just believing that spirituality was out there and real. Uh, but then as she grew, she felt like that was kind of kid stuff, and she wanted to believe that energy was good and could work to help people. And so she became a Reiki New Age healer and had a practice and saw people and tried to help them with a really form of the occult, but she said it was good magic. Um, and in the midst of all that, she knew about Christianity, and a friend actually invited her to church. She heard the gospel and believed that Jesus was the Savior, 
and she was baptized, and now she's a Christian New Age healer. And she thought, well, can I be both? And she tried to be for a while and felt confused and conflicted. And one day she had two friends that were close friends that said, hey, we want to know more about this spirituality, this healing. Can you teach us a class? And she said she actually even felt confirmation. She said her hands got kind of warm in a good way. She felt comfortable. She said, I feel like this is God moving me to say, it's okay. Go ahead and teach this class. So she began to teach these two other ladies. She met with them one time what it meant to be a a Reiki New Age healer. And that night, she had this horrible, horrifying dream of being attacked by two evil witches. And in her terror, she called the name of Jesus out. And they ran and disappeared. And she woke up amazed at the power of of the name of Jesus. And she said, what am I doing? Teaching people to rely on something other than Christ. So she called her friends and said, I I can't teach you anything else about this. I'm leaving it. She destroyed her books. She left her practice. The friends that had supposedly had an open mind instantly hated her. Said, you're a narrow-minded person. How dare you say that we can't practice this anymore? But she said, Jesus is the only way And I can't have anything to do with anything else anymore. And so God saved her dramatically, powerfully. Uh, There was a similar story of of a a lady named Mary Poplin that that was amazing and beautiful. If you want to know that, look it up. I I don't have time to tell three stories. But it it was amazing in the dreams and visions that this woman had. And the, the love that she experienced very personally from Christ as she came to faith in Christ. She also had been involved in New Age. The other story I want to mention and spend a few minutes on was a guy named Heath Adamson. Heath Adamson. Heath uh, grew up really, really curious about the occult. He never grew up and felt like he wanted to know more about New Age. He liked the power and darkness that came from the bizarre and frightening practices that he researched and discovered, and he said he began to see some of the creepy kind of stuff that you hear stories about where there was a candle floating above a table and he didn't, there were no strings, he doesn't understand what's holding it up. He just believed that there was a spiritual supernatural power there in the room with him, and he didn't understand what it was, but he liked it. So there was another time where he saw a chair slide across the floor. Nobody had touched it. He had no idea why it moved or how it moved. But he saw it moved, and he believed that there was a spiritual, supernatural power in the room that caused it to move. And then he said things began to get darker. He began to have night terrors that afflicted him so badly, he had ulcers. And he, he went to the doctor, as it, you know, his, his parents took him to the doctor, trying to figure out, why is my son having these ulcers? What's eating up his stomach? And he said it was terror. It was fear. He understood that there were things that were more powerful than him that were evil, And he was associated with them. And he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know how to get out of it. Until a friend invited him to church. And this is my favorite part of the story. Because he got invited to a church that was experiencing some division. So you would hope that he would go to a great church where everybody exhibits the love of Jesus. But what actually happened is he went to a church that was in the middle of a blow-up fight. And at the end of this meeting, that many members would have said, this was a disaster. This guy stood up and said, hey... I know this was ugly. We believe in Jesus Christ. 
that he died for our sins and he rose from the dead, and even the people here who are struggling to get along, we all believe in Jesus Christ. And I just got to believe there might be somebody here today that doesn't know Jesus. And if you want to know that God loves you and that your sins are forgiven, you need to confess your sins and believe in Jesus Christ that he died for you and rose again. And this kid is dabbling in the occult. It's like, I know this crazy power's out there. Watch all these people fight in front of him. He said, I believe. I believe. I believe that Jesus is the Savior. And he was rescued and saved and redeemed, and God has worked powerfully in his life ever since. Now, those stories are entertaining and extreme, but the Bible teaches very clearly That all of us are born spiritually blind by Satan. Some of us gravitate towards dark and evil things. Some of us gravitate towards light and beautiful things. We want peace and we we want health and happiness and we want everybody to get along. But the Bible says all of us, apart from Jesus Christ, are dead in our transgressions and sins. The Bible says all of us are spiritually blinded by Satan until... The light of the gospel of Jesus shines in our hearts and in our lives and calls us out of darkness into light. That calls us from death to life. The Bible says that when we believe on Jesus Christ, we are saved. We are given eternal life. And that's the truth that we celebrate. And that's the truth that I was preaching Easter Sunday. And it's exciting when it happens. It makes you cry in a good way. It gives you hope. But here's the tragedy. The text that we're reading this morning says that this can go the other way too. Sometimes the people that you love that have professed the name of Jesus for years walk away from the faith. And I've mentioned this as well. There's a musician by the name of Derek Webb. I grew up listening to some of his songs. Great songs. Great great songwriter. Great musician. He no longer believes in Jesus at all. In fact, the music that he writes, he tries to pull people away from Christ. You could think uh, Billy Graham had a friend as a young man who also served the Lord in church. His name was Ted Templeton. Ted Templeton, in tears, walked away from the Savior that he thought he loved but could no longer believe in and maintained his disbelief till the end of his life. And so, if you believe, great is the mystery of godliness, that Christ was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And if you believe that that glorified, risen Christ is ruling and reigning, especially in the church, why is it that people walk away? Why is it that even in a healthy church, this can happen? And importantly, Paul is writing to a young pastor that wants to shepherd these people. How can a pastor and a congregation prepare for that? I believe this first verse here in chapter 1 helps us tremendously. So this morning, I'm going to give you my outline now and kind of tell you where we're going. Here's my outline. Within the church where people believe and love the Lord Jesus, some will leave. Some will leave. Number two, some will call good evil. Some will call good evil. And this has to do with why some people leave. And then number three, all people need the truth. Number three, all people need the truth. And I believe what these six verses do 
is they give us two reasons why the church must be defended and one clear command on how to defend it. Okay, so I'm going to say that again because that tells you what I'm doing in this message. These verses give us two reasons the house of God needs defending and then one clear command to defend it. So I've spent some time introducing this message, raising this huge problem of the fact that in spite of all the power of God and the glory of Christ, in spite of the goodness of what's happening in the church, the problem is some do walk away. And because of that, the house of God, the church of God needs defending. And so this passage gives us two reasons why we must defend it and one way in particular to defend it. And my goal by the end of this is for us to rest with some sort of peace that God knows that this happens and God has given us a means to fight it. So verse 1 gives us the first of these reasons. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now I've entitled this, this line from my message or this point from my message, Some Will Leave. And I believe part of the reason Paul says this to young Timothy now is Timothy perhaps remembers the excitement of what God has done in the Ephesian church. Okay, He's there when the gospel is first preached. He sees people believe. He's seen miracles. He's seen demons cast out. He's seen the power of God on display in this church. And if he's experienced the power in the past, and then it seems like it's falling apart, it's a natural question for him to then say, is the power gone? Did God leave us? Did we do something wrong? Am I a failure as a pastor? What is happening? And so Paul, in his kindness, forewarns him. And I believe to be forewarned is to be forearmed. The truth that some will leave is not a failure on behalf of Timothy. It's not a failure, not necessarily a failure on behalf of the church. Rather, it is part of what God has planned before his son will return. Paul says this will happen. It doesn't matter how good your preaching is. It doesn't matter how good your Sunday school program is. It doesn't matter how healthy your church is. This will happen. Be ready for it. Be prepared for it. Know that it will happen. The frightening thing This verse teaches that sometimes people we love will walk away from their faith because they are devoted to doctrines of demons. They are deceived. Now, demons sound dark and evil and scary, and they are. But in reality, many of the lies people believe are cloaked in what we would call beauty. If Satan always appeared as a terrifying demon most people wouldn't follow him. Most people don't naturally feel a pull to be evil. Most people want to be liked. Most people want to be loved. Most people want to go along to get along. And so if Satan can tell you lies that will maximize your comfort and peace and happiness, he will tell you lies. And if you believe them, there's a real possibility that you will walk away from the truth. And so when Paul describes deceitful doctrines, deceitful spirits, and the teachings of demons, 
don't think the exorcist in green vomit, because that's not what this is about. Think of the people like the lady I mentioned, who is a Reiki healer, and she wants to love people, see them have less pain, celebrate all religions. You see those bumper stickers that say coexist? That's her. And she is deceived, thinking that you can follow a different religion and be fine. When the Bible makes it so clear that the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. You cannot be saved any other way. And you can think that this truth is so beautiful that, of course, we could just all get along and be happy. That's what John Lennon writes about in Imagine, right? Imagine there's no religion, no war. It'll just be so happy. That's the desire. That's the dream. And it's a demonic lie. And many people believe it because they believe it's beautiful. To be forewarned is to be forearmed here. Now, I do want to say one thing very clearly, okay? So I'm just going to pause for a minute, talking about this warning, this danger. I want to say something very clearly, because we're talking about people who call themselves Christians and walk away. And I'm saying, if they really walk away, they're lost. So I do want to be clear. I believe that if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, God will keep you. That's part of why I read that passage in Jude. God keeps those who trust his son Jesus Christ from ultimately denying Christ. There is great comfort and there's great hope in the fact that the God who saved you is the God who will keep you. So I do not believe that you can lose your salvation. That's an awesome, encouraging truth. But here's the problem. It's also possible to profess Christ and not know him. And so when I talk about people walking away from the faith, that's what I mean that they were never truly Christians. They may have said some words, they may have been part of a fellowship, and yet at the same time, they may not have known the Lord, and their walking away is real. And the danger is that they will be eternally lost because they have not trusted Christ as Savior. I don't want anyone to think, if you have genuinely trusted Christ and you are trying to follow him as best you can, I don't want you to be afraid that God is not going to keep you. You keep trusting in the God who saved you. The God who loved you so much that he sent his son to die in your place on the cross is never going to abandon you. And you can rest in his power and his salvation. Be encouraged, but also be warned that not everyone who calls themselves a believer is a believer. Paul says, some will leave because they are deceived. Sometimes people who call themselves Christians walk away from Jesus because they are deceived. The Bible does warn us to examine ourselves to see if we are of the household of faith. Now, there are going to be times when this is necessary for every believer. Taking communion is one good opportunity to do that, even as we celebrate the joy of what Christ has done for us. Scripture cautions us, and this is also from 1 Corinthians. says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, if you're living an ungodly life and you persist in sin with your actions, you are denying Christ, no matter what you call yourself. The Bible says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There is a giant laundry list of sins that if these characterize who you are, the Bible says you are not a Christian. Now Christians have and do all of those things. The difference is 
a Christian will be convicted by God of sin and repent and forsake that sin. But if you persist in sin and push away Christ, the Bible says, don't be deceived. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. The problem that Paul is describing is real. Part one is some will walk away because they are deceived. Part two is some will call good evil. Now, this is a strange and a curious turn in this message. I want to acknowledge that. I don't want to twist this verse, make it say something that it doesn't. Notice what happens here. Paul says this, Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Okay, if you read that list really carefully, Paul is not mentioning terrible, evil sins that most people would say are wrong. He's not. He's actually saying these people are too strict. They are adding rules to what God has given us. Notice the two things that he mentions. He said they forbid marriage. They won't let people that want to get married marry. And he's talking really about anybody. So one of the things that I want to talk about next week is an ancient doctrine of Gnosticism. You see it twice in this book. It's actually named at the end of the book. And I'll say a little bit more about it next week. But one of the things they believed was that the physical world was evil. And so the pleasures of eating and drinking and the pleasures of marriage were not good. And they directly contradicted the word of God. And they taught that if you wanted to be really spiritual, you wouldn't marry and you would eat a very simple diet, just enough to keep yourself alive, and that would prove your devotion to God. So they're not sinning by encouraging people to go out and get drunk and sleep around, just the opposite. They're sinning by denying the goodness of God and imposing laws and regulations on people that God has not imposed. And friends, there are two great ways that people who follow Jesus go astray. In fact, the Bible very simply says, do not deviate either to the left or to the right. You can go wrong in both directions. Maybe you think you're keeping yourself safe by adding rules to the word of God, and maybe there's a legitimate place for you to do that personally and privately. But as soon as you tell someone else, God does not want you to do this, you are adding to the word of God and imposing a standard that God has not imposed. And this passage says that's just as demonic as teaching people that sin is okay. Sometimes people go astray because they're tempted by things the Bible obviously calls sin. In other times, they go astray because they think they can be more holy than God and they pursue a righteousness of their own. And Paul says, Timothy, recognize the danger. In your church, there are people who are going to say, you know, if you're really a faithful follower of Christ, don't get married. If you're really a faithful follower of Christ, don't eat things that are bad for your body. And so to counter this kind of truth, Paul reminds Timothy of what's true, and he tells him to proclaim the truth. We'll get there in just a second. I think one of the things that is healthy and right at this moment is to pause 
and to consider some false teachings that are very prevalent in our culture and perhaps even in, in our church among our people. The reason that I read from Jude in our scripture reading, in addition to the fact that it holds out the precious promise that God keeps those who trust in Jesus, is because Jude describes the other way of going bad. So you can go bad by being too strict. That's what Paul's talking about in Timothy. You can go bad by sinning in gross ways, and that's what Jude is writing about. Both of them happen in the church. Both of them must be addressed by faithful ministers. So I want to take a second. I don't think there's anyone in our church who would say, don't get married. We believe marriage is good. In fact, we believe marriage is very good. So there's a real possibility that this passage would just fly straight over our heads and we'd say, okay, that, that was a weird time in the church. It doesn't have anything to say to us. But I think it does. As Paul addresses Timothy and warns him that there are people that will walk away from the grace of Jesus there are people that will walk away from the grace of Jesus in our church. And I think it's right and good to recognize perhaps that false teaching is not something that our church wrestles with deeply right now, but there are others that we do. And so I want to list some. How many of you have ever heard the, the phrase or the expression, there are many paths up the mountain, but all of them lead to the top? Some people say all roads lead to Rome. What do they mean by that? They're saying, well, you know, you might follow Jesus. I might follow Muhammad. He might follow Buddha. She, she might do her own thing. Who, who knows? But all of us are going to find God in our own way. It's really narrow-minded to say that you have to be a follower and a believer in Jesus. Friends, that is a lie. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is standing at the top of the mountain saying, you're not getting to the Father except through me. Period. There are some people who say things like, God won't judge my sin because it's who I am or it's how he made me. Well, well friends, the Bible teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The way we exist now is not right. The Bible says that we are by nature children of wrath because of the sin that we have from a very, very young age. And so embracing your identity and saying, it's who I am, it's how God made me, is failing to recognize our universal need for repentance. All of us, no matter what our sins are, need the blood of Jesus to cover our sins. Saying that this is who I am does not exempt you from needing the blood of Jesus. And embracing your sinful lifestyle will only cut you off from God. Instead, flee to the cross. Find the grace of Jesus freely available. Believe in him and follow him. Forsake your sin as you trust in Christ, no matter what your sin is. Other people say things like saying the sinner's prayer means you're definitely saved. But the Bible says the righteous, the, excuse me, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Being saved means God's righteousness is given to you and made in you as you follow Christ. If you never follow Christ, saying some words is not going to save you. Some people have taught things like if you're sick, it's because you aren't claiming the right promises or you don't have enough faith. That's a lie. That's a falsehood. At the beginning of the pandemic, Christians claimed that and foolishly claimed that the coronavirus would stop in a matter of months. Well, here we are. That's obviously not true. 
Not only is it not true just from experience, biblically it's not true. There are times in the Bible when people were sick and died. Sometimes in the wisdom of God, he uses death and illness to show his power and grace. The Bible is not so simple as to promise you health and wealth. There are people who say things like, a loving God would never send people to hell. Friends, a loving God would never allow evil in heaven. That's the truth. Those who persist in sin and unrighteousness will be separated from God forever. Jesus himself teaches it so clearly that hell is real. And even Christians who are uncomfortable with that idea begin to find ways to say, no, I don't know if that's true, in spite of the fact that Jesus taught it. Some people have said and believed things like, my private life doesn't matter. If I don't hurt anyone, then I'm not sinning. Friends, there is no such thing as private sin. You can try to hide your sin for a while. It will hurt your community no matter what. The Bible says that we are to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It doesn't matter if you think your sin is secret. It's an affront to a holy God. Other people will say things like, you know, the Bible has some good things in it, but it's just written by men and so it gets some things wrong too, and yet the Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed. That ultimately the author of this book is not a person, except for the person of the Holy Spirit. And so to say that it contains errors is to doubt the very Word of God. Friends, these are lies that many people in our culture believe, and that I think some in our church are tempted to believe. I hope that no one believes these things. But the solution to lies, whether they're encouraging us to be too strict or to be too lax, the solution is to give the truth lovingly and patiently. Sometimes directly and sometimes boldly, but always compassionately. And so my last point for this morning, not only will some walk away, not only will some call good evil, but lastly, all need the truth. See, you can correct both those who are too strict and those who are too lax by simply reminding them what the truth is. Read with me verses 4 through 6 this morning. Paul says, excuse me, verses 3 through 6, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Verse 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So there are two things in this small little passage. Number one is Paul gives the specific truth that addresses the falsehood that was tearing up Timothy's church. The specific truth is God created things and they are good. So don't, don't you dare call marriage an evil thing when God created it and blessed it before the fall. Don't you dare call any food evil when God created it and blessed it to be given for our nourishment and enjoyment. I love the verse that says that these things are to be received with thanksgiving. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. I receive my coffee with thanksgiving every morning. 
It's a precious and beautiful way to wake up. There are people that don't drink coffee because they think it's an evil drug. Our Mormon friends can't drink it. They deny some other really serious things. Coffee is not our biggest division. But there are conservative Christians, Seventh-day Adventists, saying, ah, caffeine's really not good for you. No, coffee is to be received with thanksgiving. (laughs) Marriage is a good, blessed by God. We must learn what marriage is from the scriptures. We're not free to broaden that definition beyond what God has created. But we must celebrate it. So Paul lays out the specific truth. God created good things. We can receive them with thanksgiving. That truth is medicine for the error and lie. And then he more broadly tells Timothy his strategy for countering those who walk away and keeping those who stay is to present these truths before the brothers. In other words, clearly preach and teach the word. He mentions doctrine in particular. At the end of this chapter, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Friends, I believe this chapter is clearly describing the role of a lead elder or a lead pastor. One of the jobs that Paul gives to Timothy as he works with the other elders in the context of the church, as he wants to make sure that he zeroes in on the word of God and helps the entire group of elders and the whole congregation know what is true. His primary responsibility is not so much to go around and counter false teaching by understanding the false teaching and showing with apologetics that it's not true. There's some value in that, but more than that, His primary responsibility is to just hold the word of God high and remind the church of what's true. So as I listed some of the false teaching that I think is prevalent in our own day, I just took a single verse. I didn't always give you a reference for it, but I took a single verse that shows what's true. And my hope is as a pastor that as we look through the whole Bible, if the Lord permits and, and I've got 30 years or so more, we are going to cover every verse in this book. And by looking at the whole Bible, the Lord will keep those who are his, and the Lord will warn those who walk away. Through faithful ministry of the word. Now as we close, what do we do with this? Well, a, a couple of things. I've got three points of application. The truth is the solution to this problem. Holding the truth high keeps those who trust Jesus because it reminds them of what's true. It warns those who walk away from Jesus because it tells them the consequence of walking away from Christ. So if you understand the value of the truth in my last point, encountering this problem of people walking away, here's what I believe we should do. Number one, examine yourself. Examine yourself. As I read through different errors that are prevalent in our culture today, did you believe any of them? I don't want a show of hands. I don't want to, I'm not going to take a survey. But did you believe any of those things? And I think, yeah, I kind of, I'd like to believe that everybody gets to God one way or another. If that's you, I would urge you to submit to the word of God here. Because what you're doing is you're pulling Jesus down 
as you try to elevate everything else up. You can't do that to the Son of God. It's a serious thing to believe that Jesus isn't really necessary. So number one, examine yourself. Number two, just as a practical instruction, regularly read and listen to the word of God. Regularly read and listen to the word of God. Paul says, put these things before the brothers, put these things before the church on a regular basis so that you are trained in the words of the faith. These are the words of the faith. Being trained in this book will help you identify error and protect you from it. So number one, examine yourself to see if you are believing in any errors. Number two, submit to the word and regularly listen to the preaching and teaching of it. And finally, number three, pray for those who have gone astray. Pray for those who have gone astray. You never know when the Lord will call them home. You don't. You cannot give up on someone as long as there is life and health and breath in them. One of my favorite pastors, this guy named John Piper, uh, his dad was an evangelist. His dad's name was Bill. Bill Piper went around all over the country. He was gone a lot and, and preached the gospel saw thousands of people saved, had, had a great ministry, had a joyful and a happy home. Bill Piper's brother, for over 30 years, walked away from the Lord. And it caused a lot of grief and a lot of pain in the family because you love both things, right? You love the Lord and you love your brother. When your brother doesn't love the Lord, it creates a division and it hurts. And so for over 30 years, Bill's brother just pushed the family away. Until one day, in tears, he, he weepingly confessed that he needed Jesus. And the whole family was reunited after three decades of separation. Now maybe at year 29, they felt like, there's just no hope. I'm praying for this guy 29 years. Friends, don't give up. As long as the Lord gives life and breath, he's continuing to extend mercy. Pray for those who have walked away. Pray daily. Pray diligently. Pray with the love of the Father that God has for them. Pray that the Lord would bring them back. As we've experienced trials and, and difficulties in our church, pray for our fellowship, that the Lord would unite us around his word and his truth, that we would be a joyful place that celebrates what's true. Be devoted to the word and prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you for your mercy in welcoming guilty sinners into your body and into your family, into your church. We praise you for your patience. Lord, so I want to ask, I want to ask for your protection on this body, that you would protect us from falsehood and error, that when our hearts are tempted to go astray, you would keep us by your word that we would understand it accurately and that our church would be built on it Father I pray that as we examine ourselves we will be fully persuaded that Jesus is our precious savior that he is our shepherd and 
Father, I pray for those that we know who have walked away. Lord, have mercy. Use us to spread your grace and your love and your forgiveness and your invitation to repent. And Lord, I pray that we would see you build us up. I pray that we would see forgiveness and reconciliation and hope. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. 